Hello and welcome to the Polemical History Podcast, where we discuss history that borders on taboo. This is Tim Rudy. And this is Anthony Blackwell. And today, in the first of a short series, we're going to talk about three ancient pandemics that changed history and, in a manner of speaking, remade the world. While COVID-19 has been on the tip of everyone's tongue for going on a year now, this is only one instance in history with many inflection points of pandemics. If you're listening to this podcast, you've probably lived through at least one global pandemic. Your ancestors certainly have, anyway. Yeah, it's crazy to think about that. I, I remember um, reading The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, and in it he, I think it's The Selfish Gene, he gives a thought experiment where he asks you to imagine um, having a Polaroid photo of your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, you know, um, ad infinitum, uh, going right back to the, to the dawn of life on land, on earth, and he, I think he suggests that such a stack of photographs would reach the height of the Empire State Building. And at no point in that stack of hypothetical photographs could you remove one and say that, okay, this individual or this creature, I guess, um, represents one species and their offspring represents another you know how these are artificial categories yeah it's very subtle changes from one generation to the next but eventually after many 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 generations you eventually get to a big change but but, it, but it's mad to think that you um are the product you are the offspring of um a, an ancient line of um individuals or creatures that have uh, procreated and were you not to have a child um, you 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 would you would you would end that that line from the dawn of time. It's crazy, no? Yeah, that is amazing. Um, and its reproduction itself is uh, is fascinating. Like, why why are we the way we are? It's not because it's necessarily the best way to be, or it's necessarily uh, the right way to be. But we our our genes, our behavior is just simply the fact that the ones who managed to reproduce passed it down, and yeah. that's why we have it. So, so all of us are survivors of ancient pandemics and, and modern pandemics uh, take, for example, the, the Black Dead, which we'll discuss in a future episode. Um, we are the survivors of those that survived that, that plague. It's, it's crazy. It's mind-blowing. Yeah. And, and thinking about diseases just in a more global sense, you would think that since viruses, um, some bacterial infections, uh, cancer, these things are kind of the major killers um, uh, the major killer diseases of humanity, you would think that over, you know, the, the number of uh, millions and millions of people that have lived uh, these, these thousands and thousands of generations that you speak of, you would think that these viruses wouldn't be such a big issue, right, anymore. Uh, but they keep coming, you know, not only do we evolve, they evolve as well. They mutate and they learn new tricks. And Yeah, I guess we're going to talk about some of that today. Yeah. Uh, where were you, Tim, when you first heard about the novel coronavirus? Uh, I was in... France, uh, I guess I was probably, it was probably January. I don't think I heard about it really in December. I don't think so. But I, I think it was probably some sort of like little YouTube uh, news report or, or a little mini documentary on um, the coronavirus in, in Wuhan there, that famous doctor, I forgot his name, the one that ended up eventually succumbing to the disease. He was the first one that started ringing the alarm bells um, for COVID-19. And of course, in the beginning, the Chinese Communist Party was like, shut up, shut up. <laughs> and eventually, um, then they realized, okay, don't shut up. This is a big deal. And now we need to address it. Yeah, and then they celebrated him. Um, a little yeah. too late. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I believe I first heard about it from, from, a, from a good friend. In fact, he's a listener of the show. So kind of a shout out to him. Um, 
from a good friend who's been living in China for the best part of the last decade. And uh, he called me up and we were speaking about it. And he was uh, concerned because he, at the time, was living in Beijing. And um, I was concerned that he was concerned. But I, to be honest, I was, I was quite naive. I thought there's very little chance of this becoming um, a pandemic. Um, yeah. Well, I think a lot of people sounded the alarm for Ebola in like 2013 or something like that. I remember my father was like, this thing could really blow up. And I didn't really believe him. And, and then I think that, you know, nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100, it's like these things kind of die off. They get nipped in the bud in some way or another, or they just die off on their own, but not with COVID-19. No, I remember the same was speculated about the Zika virus back in, I, I forget when that was, what, 2016 or thereabouts. Yeah, 2016, I think, yeah. Yeah, but uh, little did we little did we know. Um, so this is hardly a new topic for discussion, but it's new for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pandemics are... They've been around um, for for all of the history of of humankind, and they probably will continue to be as long as we live uh, in these these millions and millions of um, as long as we live in large populations like this, large cities and and a global civilization. What's kind of crazy, and it struck me at the time when I first heard about uh, the pandemic, and there was talk about uh, lockdown, and you know. You were hearing about an outbreak in in Iran and in Italy, and for for several weeks we were all kind of watching um, with our mouths agape when Italy was seriously, seriously implicated. Yeah, why Italy? You know, I, I have a friend who lives in Italy. Um, what's up, Morgan? Uh, he said that um, early on, I guess they just had trouble finding patient zero in Italy, which is, uh, I guess that's, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, but that seems to be like a good first step in terms of, uh, uh, you know, trying to keep the virus spread under control is find patient zero, you know, then you can find, you know, who are you with? Okay. Who are those people with? Mm. Um, it's kind of like the first big step, but they, they couldn't do it in the, in the, in there. And it was February, I think in Italy, it was yeah. like in February or yeah, probably like mid February. Yeah. I remember, uh, you know, in France and I suppose everywhere around the world, people watching the Italians applauding, um, their, their, what do you call them? Not the f- Essential workers, yeah, yeah, essential or, workers. Yeah, the first responder, front line uh, from their balconies, and then you know we ourselves found ourselves in that situation a month later. But at the time, I was reading a book, um, a novel by an Australian novelist called On the Beach. The novelist is called Neville Shute, and um, it's it was written in the sixties. It sort of dramatizes kind of Cold War concerns, the fear of nuclear war. But it, the setting takes place in Australia um, after a third world war, a nuclear war. And essentially, everyone is just waiting for the radiation to reach the antipodes and, and, uh, and, and, and for humanity to be, to be snuffed out. The um, long dark. The long dark, exactly. But the, the description of society during these final six months as the radiation slowly advances uh, towards the antipodes, it was uncannily familiar to how uh, COVID-19 played out and how it spread spread around the world. It was, it was kind of frightening. Yeah, yeah. But I think COVID-19, even early on, didn't we know that it wasn't an extremely deadly disease? We knew it was very deadly to the elderly, but I feel like in the beginning that really helped soften the blow that we knew it wasn't going to ravage the young uh, the way some of these other plagues we're going to talk about. Yeah, de- deadly enough to warrant the response that we've we've seen and we're living through. But when we hear about 
the the plagues, the pandemics that we're going to discuss in this episode and perhaps in another one or two. My God. It's another level, yeah. Now, so while you're listening to these details um, and today about ancient pandemics, imagine if we were living today with the gravity of these former pandemics. Okay. Um, well, uh, no one's a stranger to what a pandemic is. However, just for the sake of uh, thoroughness, um, a pandemic is a disease that's prevalent over a whole country or the world. And in the realm of infectious diseases, a pandemic is the worst case scenario. Right. Not to be confused with plague, right? Pandemics, are plague, pandemics yeah. and plagues are different, right? Apparently, uh, the meaning of the original Greek word plague, they used it interchangeably. Basically, a plague um, could be applied to any, any form of sickness in the, in the, in the classical world. Um, so that's why you have you, you, you read about it often, even in cases that aren't concerned with bubonic plague or the Black Death. Um, and I think in Latin, they use the word uh, plague and, and pest uh, interchangeably, too. So that's obviously where you get the word um, plague in French, you know. I didn't find the etymology on plague, but on um, pandemic, it comes from Greek, which uh, it's pan, which means all in Greek, and then uh, demos, which of course everyone people. knows means people. Yes, yeah, so all so people. All people. Mm -hmm. And it's telling, actually, that the word pandemic comes from Greek because the first recorded pandemic um, occurred in Athens, which will be the first pandemic that we discuss today. Um, what's crazy, though, is Epidemics and pandemics are rarely discussed in history classes. I don't remember once studying the role of microbes in, in history at school. It was always the great man theory of history, never the microbial theory of history. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> no. Uh, but, you know, not so long ago, they were a terrible fact of life. And I think in 1962, a Nobel Prize-winning virologist, uh, Sir Frank McFarlane Burnett, stated that, quote, to write about infectious disease is almost to write of something that has passed into history, end quote. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting take. I, d I did have one sort of prescient teacher, um, and any of, any of our listeners who, who went to high school with me <laughs> will remember him. Um, I think his name was Mr. O'Donoghue. Um, and he assigned us a book called The Coming Plague um, by a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Laurie Garrett. And this was published in 1995. I probably read it around 1998. But I remember th that book struck me and made a big impact on some of my classmates. And when, when COVID-19 uh, came about, my, class, my former classmates and I on the phone uh, you know, discussed. We remember reading this, reading this book 20 years previously. Um, I mean, people knew this was coming, and that teacher was certainly on the ball. <laughs> but it didn't feel as daunting back then as it probably did at uh, the no, beginning of last year. No, it was always something speculative, but here we are. Uh, throughout history, nothing has killed more human beings than the viruses, bacteria, and parasites that cause infectious disease, neither natural disasters nor war. And yet there are a few memorials to the victims of disease. Yeah, they're kind of our natural predator, um, but they're not very... They're difficult to you know, imagine really they're so, they're usually microscopic. And, uh, they, of course we only recently really understand the way germs and bacteria and what's the difference between the bacteria and a virus. Okay. You can mm -hmm. use antibiotics to mm -hmm. fight bacteria. You can't use it on viruses. Like these things are all, we're talking last hundred years, maybe even less on these things. I think we're very hubristic as well. I think, you know, we glorify, um, human scale achievements and we don't like to think of ourselves 
at the whim or at, at the mercy of other life forms, you know? Absolutely. Um, where they're where they're fodder, you know. Yeah, and I think it goes hand in hand with the with the gods. I think people when the when a pandemic was coming or when someone was sick, um, even today, you know, we people pray to God, mm. um, and that must have been even more so in the past when they had very little understanding of the way these diseases worked. Yeah, yeah. At the dawn of the nineteenth century, global life expectancy was only twenty nine years. Uh, and this isn't because human beings couldn't live to much older ages even then, but because so many of us died in infancy um, from disease. I think you were telling me earlier that um, I think 70% of the enormous number of victims of malaria in Africa are children under the age of five. Yes, that's true. Yeah, about uh, 67% are under five. Yeah, and, and 94% of the people who die of malaria are African. Mm. So it's crazy. We have this disparity even in the modern world of uh, certain regions that are, you know, demographically speaking, still living um, according to this model, demographic model of 200 years ago, you know, from our perspective. Um, or people died simply from infection during childbirth or, or even after a wound. Right. Yeah. Um, who is it? Hobbes? Life is... Oh, yeah. Thomas... Uh, is it Thomas Hobbes? Is it, uh, I think it's Thomas Hobbes, yeah. Life is a short, nasty, nasty British and short, yeah. <laughs> um, I remember chatting to um, an Irish cancer researcher. In fact, I think he, he does the same job as your, your wife. Your wife is, is a researcher in cancer. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. she researches um, nanomedicine for uh, breast cancer. Okay. He, well, he was telling me that, you know, I, I, I thought it was wonderful to speak to him because he really, ex I, I, I thought he should have been a teacher. He really explained these things very, very clearly to, to a lay person like myself. But, you know, he asked me, you know, had I ever required antibiotics for anything? And I remember thinking, oh, my God, two years ago, I had this chest cold that I could not shift. I was really ill for like a month. I didn't go to the hospital. I kept working. I was convinced I'd get over it, you know, with my natural immune system. And I became really, really bad and uh, had to go to the emergency room and go on antibiotics straight away. And he said, yeah, that would have that would have likely killed you. You would have died, you know, <laughs> in, a, in a parallel timeline. Yeah, yeah, I've heard stories of that, or even people today that for whatever reason they refuse to go to the doctor, maybe they maybe they can't afford it, maybe they just don't want to, maybe they want to tough it out, but some of these little bacterial infections, if you don't treat them soon enough, it can it can be too late. <laughs> I've, often, yeah, I've often thought that as well about people who wear glasses. Um, uh, I mean, how many <laughs> blind people must have been wandering around the place um, in history, you know, in the past. But I think there's also this effect with glasses where if you're nearsighted and then you use glasses, you have glasses, I think your eyes start to sort of adjust and you become even more nearsighted. And then you need, you know, like, of course, it's genetic. It's all genetic and it, it's somewhat environmental. But an ophthalmologist explained to me that, like, if you never wear glasses, actually your eyes, you'll still need glasses, but your eyes will be better than if you wear glasses. Okay, okay. Okay. Okay, they, they, use the, they use them like a crutch. Yeah, um, there's an adaptive effect, like okay. a, a feedback thing. That's well, what he explained to me. Well, I'm fortunate to, at the moment, have 20-20 vision. And uh, this, this cancer researcher also said, you're, you're very privileged. You know, out of the 7 billion people on Earth, you are quite privileged to have 20-20 vision because the majority of people don't. Yeah, it's amazing. For me, since I was 11 years old, I've needed glasses. Yeah, you need to take these kind of, you know, long-distant uh, look at yourself you yeah know, big to, picture <laughs> yeah big big picture um it can be difficult to comprehend how quickly that change in life expectancy occurred our great-grandparents could have fallen victim to the 1918 flu 
um, and I possibly have members of my you know, distant family who, who died in that pandemic. Um, our grandparents lived their infancy and youth before penicillin was developed. That's crazy. That's really crazy. I'm allergic to penicillin. It. Oh, are you? Uh. Yeah, the greatest, arguably the greatest invention of the 20th century, and I do not benefit. I'm not fortunate in that sense. Oh, no. I don't know what the hell's going to happen <laughs> if I ever need it. Um, I think when I was a child, uh, they gave it to me, and I, I just swelled up like a balloon. Oh, okay, well, at least it didn't kill you. <laughs> I'm glad to see you're still here. I'm touching the wooden table here. Yeah. I'm still super superstitious. Um, and our parents were, were born just after the polio vaccine had been invented in 1954. Damn, FDR could have used that one. Mm, um, that, by the way, was eradicated in the continent of Africa last year. It was one of the good pieces of news that didn't quite penetrate through all the COVID-19 doom and gloom. That's awesome, yeah. And I'm, I'm assuming Africa was the last continent to have any polio cases? Or, or perhaps to have it so um, end endemic. Prevalent, or, yeah. Um, in the developed world and increasingly in the developing world, uh, we are now more likely to die from non-communicable diseases like cancer, heart disease, or Alzheimer's, the so-called diseases of civilization, than from a contagion. Uh, I suppose the decline of infectious disease is the best evidence that life on this planet truly is getting better, which should please the rational optimists like Steven Pinker and Bill Gates or the, the late Hans Rosling. Yeah, even the poor, who's it? I think Bill Gates yeah, and Pinker, they say like even the poorest of the poor live in much better conditions than middle class people lived in 100, 200, 300 years ago. Yeah, COVID-19 reminds us that infectious diseases haven't vanished. In fact, there are more new ones now than ever. The number of new infectious diseases like SARS, HIV, and COVID-19 has increased by nearly fourfold over the past century. Since 1980 alone, the number of outbreaks per year has more than tripled. Well, more people maybe? More people, more outbreaks? Yeah, I, I would say there are several reasons. Um, we've doubled the number of people on the planet over the last 50 years, like you said. Yeah. Just, um, a, just doubled. Yeah. Just don't. This mean that's crazy. When World War Two was fought, um, there were four times fewer people in the world. Damn, that's mad. Yeah, but hasn't the population increased? I feel like they are starting to lower their projections. Though I remember when I was in high school, they were like, "Oh, we're going to be at ten billion by no. twenty fifty And well, now they're it's from from what I've read recently, it's supposed to cap. Um, cap off or cap out or yeah level off level off the what were they saying the curve is going to yeah it's like an s curve yeah yeah it's gonna it's gonna level off uh, around the year 2100 at the end of this century at about 10 to 12 billion i think globally and in fact from what i've read um the greatest continent uh, where we're going to notice um a rise in uh it's africa right childbirth is africa yeah yeah, yeah. So, and uh, that's why the French are like cheering. They're like, French is going to become the most spoken language in the world. Better get back to it. So, <laughs> um, well, so that means there's more human beings to get infected and in turn to infect others, uh, especially in densely populated cities, uh, cities which are even becoming more densely populated. We also have more livestock now than we did over the last 10,000 years of domestication. Um, and uh, viruses, as you know, can leap from those animals to us. Yeah. And vice versa. Uh, in a Guardian article today, um, apparently at the San Diego Zoo, great apes, including gorillas and bonobos, have been given COVID-19 vac uh, vaccines. Vaccines, yeah. Starting to demonstrate symptoms. That's crazy. So, I mean, we too can pass it on to other creatures. Yeah. Yeah. For once, we're giving it to them. Huh? Those poor apes. Um, at least have a vaccine. 
they got a two hundred and we did. <laughs> Didn't they give us AIDS though? It was just like payback. Oh, that was a monkey. Oh, okay. that was a monkey. A little different. Yeah, <laughs> a, little, okay. a little lower on our. I'm animalist. I'm just like uh, <laughs> grouping all the animals, all the primates together, like a racist, but just for primates. Well, cows gave us smallpox. Oh, did they? Yeah. Yeah, they gave us measles too. Yeah, uh, smallpox comes from cowpox, and uh, cattle are the I think the creature that that we've been most closely associated with. I think we domesticated them like 9,000 years ago. Right, and I guess you can't really complain about diseases you get from an animal that you domesticated. Mm. Like, if you had just left it alone, yeah. <laughs> you sure, wouldn't have got anything. Sure, you're right. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that now in a moment, too, actually. Um, yeah, and so uh, our interconnected global economy, too, I would suppose, uh, helps spread new infectious diseases. Yeah, how many things in the room right now are made in China or Vietnam or... Yeah, these crazy long su- supply chains. Um, climate change, too, is expanding the range of disease-carrying animals and insects, like that mosquito that transmits the Zika virus. Anyway, so it's safe to say that disease is a driver of human history, despite the dearth of monuments or discussions about that in history class. Um, in fact, I've got a quotation here by Jared Diamond, author of um, Guns, Germs, and Steel, which won the Pulitzer when it came out. Uh, quite a few years ago. Great book. Have you ever read it? Yes. Guns, Germs. And I love Jared Diamond. I've listened to a lot of his talks, and he's a, a brilliant guy. He has this funny accent. Society. Society. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's he's a brilliant guy, man. He was able to look at human population like no one else has in the, in the you know, in recent history or probably ever. I thought it would be cool to do like an episode one day, perhaps on uh, geographic determinism, just alone. Yeah, I'm alone. Or geopolitics, or right, right, yeah. This idea that ha- it's better to have a uh, east to west country than a north to south one. Yeah. Some of his more recent books too have come under some criticism. It would be worth, uh, you know, talking about that. But according to Diamond, and I'm going to give a quotation here. Please bear with me. Because diseases have been the biggest killers of people, they have also been decisive shapers of history. Until World War II, more victims of war died of war-borne microbes than of battle wounds. All those military histories glorifying great generals oversimplify the ego-deflating truth. The winners of past wars were not always the armies with the best generals and weapons, but were often merely those bearing the nastiest germs to transmit to their enemies. Yeah. End quote. Absolutely. All right. So pandemics are are said to shape human affairs in, in, in three ways, by either profoundly altering a society's fundamental worldview upending their core economic structures and swaying power struggles among nations. Today we're going to talk about three ancient pandemics and and how they shaped human affairs. Uh, The three we're going to talk about are the Plague of Athens, um, the so-called Plague of Athens, uh, because it, uh, well, we don't quite know what caused it, but it wasn't bubonic plague. Right. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, it was probably typhoid. Is that right? Yeah, they suggest typhoid fever or typhus, but it's still the 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 jury's still out. Uh, there's still a lot of arguments that could be made for hemorrhagic fevers like Ebola, and some people argue that there might have been multiple things going on there. Um, so we'll explore that. Um, we're going to talk also about the Antonine Plague, right? Which is um, more clear on where that came from mm-hmm. and what it was, right? Yeah. And the Cyprian Plague, which I believe they consider almost like the Antonine Plague Part 2. Okay. Was that around the same time then? It was yeah, it was like a century later, I okay. believe. Oh, a whole century. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there <laughs> For would, antiquity, it's like around the same time. Yeah, <laughs> there, there would have been other outbreaks um, 
around the time of the Antonine Plague and then about a century later, and you know, they think it, it hit back with a vengeance. Yeah, and, the, and a century later, I read it came back to Rome as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. It didn't uh, just spread to other parts of the empire. It actually, maybe, or maybe it did and it came back. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to know these things, I guess. The mother of all ancient pandemics, uh, the Justinian Plague, which was the first recorded outbreak of bubonic plague, I think we've decided to treat uh, perhaps in the next episode, which we'll devote to um, the Black Death. Right. Yeah, the Black Death is such a an exciting one. It's the, uh, it's the Nazis of the plague world. Isn't it? <laughs> it was only a matter of time. I was <laughs> going to try and slip in the Nazis for you. Um, however, before getting to history's first recorded pandemic, I think it might be worth talking a little bit about why the rise of agriculture launched the evolution of um, of our crowd infectious diseases. Like, why was the plague of Athens the first pandemic? Um, why? What were there any before? What do people think there may have been others before? Where Where did they come from? What? Okay. Yeah, th- I think it's it's uh, it leaves little doubt that there were plagues before, right? It's just that this one was the first, like, well documented, clear, plain as day plague. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's very difficult to imagine it was the first plague in all of humanity, right? No, the the plague of Athens, I mean, again, it's the first recorded plague. So these are the ones that we actually have doc- documented um, eyewitness testimony about, and namely in the plague of Athens, uh, we can thank Thucydides, author of the history of the Peloponnesian War for that. But communicable diseases existed during humankind's hunter-gatherer days too, um, but it was to shift to as we said earlier, agrarian life about 10,000 years ago um, that created communities that made epidemics more possible. So malaria, uh, which I, I think you know something about, Tim. Yeah, I'll talk about malaria later. Cool. Um, tuberculosis, leprosy, influenza, smallpox, um, among others, first appeared during this period. Um, and, and Jared Diamond, who, whom I, I read a quote from a few moments ago, he considers... Um, these crowd diseases that are responsible for pandemics to be the quote-unquote lethal gift of livestock. Yeah, I guess nomadic people have livestock too, but when you're out in the open, moving around a lot more, I think it's more difficult for these plagues, these bacterium, bacteria to uh, grab hold. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I mean, diseases like that can sustain themselves in, in small bands of, of, of people, uh, especially hunter-gatherers or slash-and-burn farmers. Um, and they can't, these small communities, they can't sustain epidemics either uh, from the outside. Uh, and they can't, they can't evolve their own epidemic diseases to share with others. Right, and you need rats, we'll see, in, in most of these plagues. Uh, not all of them, but most of the plagues, mm-hmm. rats and fleas are just a key uh, spark to the plague. Yeah, most of the major killers of humanity throughout our what, recent history, smallpox, flu, tuberculosis, malaria, plague, measles, cholera, um, the ones I mentioned a moment ago. Um, these are infectious diseases that evolve from the diseases of animals. And those animals themselves develop um, develop the, the diseases because they are quite numerous animals as well. They're all the domesticated animals, the social animals, uh, the herd animals. Um, so humans aren't the only ones um, who suffer from pandemics. Uh, livestock do too. The first attested dates for many familiar infectious diseases are surprisingly recent, in fact, um, at around 1600 BCE. That's about a thousand years before the plague of Athens. Um, 
smallpox developed and apparently um, that was deduced from pockmarks on an Egyptian mummy. And smallpox, um, just to jump ahead a bit, that was probably what hit uh, the, ant- the Antonine Plague was probably smallpox, right? Smallpox mm-hmm. is speculate, yeah. Um, okay, in 400 BCE, around the time actually of the Plague of Athens, um, that's when mumps developed. Um, so like you said, I mean, once, once agriculture was developed, uh, farmers are more sedentary. They also live am- among their own sewage. They use their feces and urine as fertilizer. Um, they become surrounded by disease, transmitting rodents, like you said, who are attracted by stored food. And then the rise of cities worsened these sanitary conditions. Yeah, sewage is so interesting. It took us like thousands of years to realize, actually, when we go to the bathroom, we need to get that stuff out of the city. <laughs> like, yeah. We need to take it where it's from and take it out. Better out than in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, until the 20th century, constant immigration of healthy peasants from the countryside was necessary to make up the constant deaths of city dwellers from, from crowd disease. Yeah, what do people say? Like, uh, if you visited Rome, you just wouldn't be able to enjoy it. If you went back 2,000 years and visited mm-hmm. the, the city of Rome, it would have smelled so bad, you wouldn't have been able to think about anything else. Yeah, these times and places that we're discussing today um, and in, in subsequent episodes, I mean, if you were Mar- Marty McFly, you do not want to type these destinations into the DeLorean. <laughs> yeah, right. Better, better avoid these. Yeah, just go back to 1955, it'll be fine. All right, so the, the so-called Plague of Athens, um, as you said, it was the world's first recorded pandemic. Uh, we're talking 430 to 427 BC. Um, this is when eyewitnesses from the era spoke of an epidemic for the first time. And like you said, it's, it's, unsu- it's not unsurprising. Um, it's not surprising, rather, that the word pandemic is derived from, from the Greek language. Makes sense, yeah. And um, so what is the backdrop of this plague? There was a war, right? The Second Peloponnesian War, is that right? Yeah, so this was the second, the time of the Second Peloponnesian War. I think it was the second year of that war. Uh, it was a 27-year-long um, conflict between Sparta. You know, I'm just going to na- name drop a couple of words here because I never get to use these in regular conversation. Between the Lacedaemonians, <laughs> the Dorians, and the, and the Athenians. Okay. Sorry, I just had to say Those Lac- are the people Lac- from the peninsula, <laughs> is that it? Yeah, they're, they're the Spartans. Um, okay. Um, and uh, Sparta were the preeminent, well, as we're all aware, no doubt, the preeminent land force. Right. Um, whereas the Athenians were the preeminent uh, maritime force. Right. Um, so Pericles, who we'll talk about shortly, the, the Athenian general who was their de facto leader for like 40 years, um, his short-term strategy was to round up all Athenian citizens and 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 confine them within the city perimeter um, so that they were protected um, on the land side. Kind of a war of attrition against the Spartans. Exactly, yeah. and, and but they had their great fleet and they were open to the sea so they could maintain their supply chains and, and force a, a naval um, conflict or combat. Um, but you have to remember too, Athens, it's not, just, it's not just this walled city. I mean, Athens was massive. Athens had a population... I think of around twenty-five thousand at this time, which dwarfed other city-states. I think Corinth was the next biggest. Corinth was also a, a naval, a naval city, and Corinth's population was about half of Athens, and uh, the other city-states would have been smaller still. And Athens wasn't just a city; it was the surrounding countryside. It was the the metropole, you know, um, the different townlands, and, and you know, the, the half of all Greeks still live in Athens today. Really? Yeah, five. The, Greece has a population of about ten million, and half of them uh, 
live in Athens still. Okay, so I mean that that probably bears true of this time as well. So you can imagine what these overcrowded conditions. Um, you know, in the short term, they were they were protected. A flank was protected from the Spartans, but it made them susceptible to to as we as we will see the the arrival of the of the so-called plague, the plague, yeah. which was not bubonic plague. Um, the pandemic, the the plague arrived in the Athenian port of Piraeus. And if you can imagine Athens at the time, I mean, it was a sophisticated city for its day. We're talking about the golden age of Greek or Athenian society. Uh, the Parthenon, the Acropolis had just been built by Pericles. Um, it was a center of trade, a center of learning, center of the arts. It was a multicultural um, place, albeit xenophobic. Um, Greek society was. It appears quite xenophobic. Yeah, barbarians to the north. Like if you're not Greek, you're mm. barbarian. If you don't speak Greek, you're a barbarian, right? And apparently, on the on the bridge, on the land bridge between the port of Piraeus and the Athenian city, you had all these displaced persons, um, essentially homeless people, uh, living in makeshift shelters, um, and the virus tore through them, as or virus or bacteria, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Within a matter of days, it had infected the city. Right. Yeah. It's a. It's probably. Yeah. It was a bacteria. No, not a virus. Yeah. Um, it it still remains a mystery. Um, whatever it was that caused it, uh, among the many suggestions as the diagnosis has been Ebola, typhoid, smallpox, measles, bubonic plague. I think that's been ruled out now. Cholera, influenza, even ergot poisoning, ergotism. I think it's called and a host of animal diseases, and the scientific and scholarly community has accepted none as the fatal disease. I think there was one Greek uh, archaeologist, though, that um, dug up one of some tomb in Athens, I read, and he, they were able to conclude that uh, the, one of the corpses that they found had uh, a parasite on it or something like that, which was strongly associated with uh, typhoid. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think it was from a tooth. They extracted it from a tooth, um, and it seemed to suggest typhus or typhoid, but there's a lot of controversy over that finding, too, from what I've read. Um, I think the methodology of, 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 of the examination has been called into question by a lot of people. Um, others even suggest that it may have been caused by uh, an, another, there might have been another cause altogether, and I mean, it, it no longer exists. Um, according to Jared Diamond, again, um, the annals of medicine are full of accounts of diseases that sound like no disease known today, but that once caused terrifying epidemics and then disappeared as mysteriously as they had come. Um, and he gives two examples, actually. The English sweating sickness, which swept and terrified Europe between 1485 and 1552, and the Picardy sweats of the 18th and 19th century France. Um, they vanished long before modern medicine had devised methods for identifying the responsible microbes. So who knows? Maybe it was something altogether different. Yeah, what's for sure, I guess, what I read um, for the Athenian plague is people started getting really sick uh, you know, extremely bad breath, vomiting, fever, just lethargia. And um, when the first people started to naturally want to help the sick people, they in turn got extremely sick and people were able to observe that. Yeah. And that's when it got really bad, right? That's when people started fleeing the city and all hell broke loose. Yeah, one of the problems is that, um, well, one of, one of, one of the, the people you have to speak about, I think, when speaking about the Plague of Athens is Thucydides. Um, and he was very... 
in his approach to describing uh, the symptoms of this plague. He was very empirical, very rational, very dispassionate, very clinical, which was quite uncommon at the time. He was very skeptical of superstitious causes, um, and he thought history was a process of human nature and there were natural causes. Um, and actually, every historian um, after him sort of emulated his style, and it's a style that we can relate to uh, more easily. Um, so he recorded the symptoms. He himself actually caught the plague but survived. Um, but the problem was that the symptoms he described don't fit exclusively one disease or another. So that's why some people speculate that there might have been a combination of things going on. Nasty cocktail, yeah, so to speak. Ooh. Um, according to various scholars, by its end, uh, the pandemic killed um, upwards of a third of the population, uh, a population which numbered between 250 and 300,000. And this is something you see recurring um, in every plague or almost every plague in, throughout history is it always seems to kill a quarter to a third of the population, which I think is interesting. It's, mm. uh, you know... The idea that uh, any kind of disease could wipe out an entire population is probably unrealistic. It's probably almost impossible for a disease to come along and wipe out an entire population. But when it's really bad, a, a third, a quarter to a third, is uh, seems to be a theme, a recurring theme that I've I think, observed. I think smallpox in a new world. I mean, we we might even dedicate a, a third part in the series to um, the Columbian Exchange and the impact of deadly diseases in the new world. Um, you know, after the 16th century, but apparently smallpox, when it was introduced to some of the Native American peoples, wiped up wiped out up to 90 percent of of some tribes. In fact, they they think that about 90 percent of or 95 percent of the the New World's native indigenous populations were wiped out by you know the cumulative uh, diseases that were brought over by the Europeans and and, and also by the military. And that's true. Okay, so that one, in that case, it does. But they they this. had they had no uh, pre-existing sort of tolerance for any of these diseases, too. So. Right. Yeah, as we'll see with the Antonine Plague, which probably came from China. Um, you know, the old world had this advantage of having shared their yeah. microbes and their their germs for centuries and centuries. One of the things that um, impressed uh, Thucydides was the psychological and social breakdown of his fellow Athenians. Um, and the moral panic that ensued. Um, I mean, epidemic and, and pandemics have strong metaphorical co connotations. Uh, they've always had social and emotional consequences. Um, they have a power, powerful psychological effect, pr you know, prompting anxiety and paranoia and public hysteria. Um, and, and these have real, real implications. We see it today, but perhaps on a, on a smaller scale, I mean... I don't know, has anything struck you unusual about how people have behaved in terms of uh, society? <laughs> Toilet paper buying, hoarding. Yeah, I know, yeah, people are getting killed over, you know, shooting people for not wearing a mask or wearing a mask. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think the other day in Dublin there were, were you know, anti-mask and anti-vaxxer uh, protests in, in the city center and I mean I think two police officers had their ankles broken another had his eardrum perforated by a by a firework um, I mean it's uh, yeah I think uh, well it feels like the the mask issue became political almost almost immediately after the arrival of the virus mm. these things are echoed in in these ancient societies too but I mean on a on a much 
um, more ramped up scale. I mean, if you're dealing with something where a third of the population die, imagine imagine entering this period, 2020, 21, 22, whatever, this period of three years and emerging from it and uh, a third to a half of the population has disappeared. That would be mind-boggling it would be life-changing uh it would be horrible imagine three three to five out of ten people that you know are no longer there. no longer there yeah that's uh it's too hard to imagine but it it is the reality i mean if you probably some families where they lost both grandparents maybe they lost both grandparents and uncle Mm -hmm. and their mother to coronavirus um it, it is it is a reality for some i'm sure no it's heartbreaking my heart really goes out for you know elderly people you know, and for whom these years are their are their last years, and it's very hard. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so the plague of Athens, I guess, is just kind of petered out eventually. Uh, and oh, well, they lost the war because of it. I think it's uh, worth mentioning uh, they had to surrender to the Spartans. Yeah, historians say that it it marks the beginning of the decline of Athens, but this, as we'll see, is kind of a common trope in the historiography. They say the same about Rome. Um, in the aftermath of the subsequent plagues or pandemics. And uh, later in, in the Middle Ages, they say the same about the Black Death and how that led to the inst- you know, institution of the feudal system. Um, yeah, these repercussions are difficult to measure. But the end of the feudal system. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Rome, um, like I'll talk about later uh, with malaria. Malaria both contributed to the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire. So. Mm. According to to Thucydides as well, not until 1415 um, BC did Athens recover sufficiently um, to mount another major offensive against um, in, in the Peloponnesian War, um, and that turned out to be a disastrous one, uh, known as the Sicilian Expedition. Um, apparently, their political strength weakened, morale was sapped. Um, you know, Athens would eventually go on to be defeated um, by Sparta and fall from being a major power in ancient Greece. So, Anthony, um, tell me about this Antonine Plague. I know there was a, a guy named Galen present. It's also called the Galen's, uh, Galen's Plague, rather. Yeah, so the Antonine Plague is so-called because of um, Marcus Aurelius, who is, who is one of the Roman emperors at the time, um, um, Along with Lucius Verus, Lucius Verus, oh, Lucius Verus, yeah. both of whom, like Pericles, whom I mentioned briefly before, uh, died um, due to due to the plague. Yeah, Lucius died first, I think. Yeah, Lucius died first, and Marcus Aurelius, I think, several years later. Um, it was also called the Plague of Galen because Galen was the uh, the, the the doctor, the the reigning, uh, the Anthony Fauci of the day, of the Anthony <laughs> Fauci of the day. They should call us the Fauci. Yeah, the, the, the Fauci, Fauci pandemic. Plague. Oh, Trump would love that. <laughs> yeah. Um. So they, yeah, they, they, they often. That's another. That's another sort of um, trope. They, they name a lot of these pandemics after the person who um, either was in power at the time or or who documented it. And yeah, just a quick, um, a little bit on Galen. So he apparently coined the word plague. Did you find that? No, no. Yeah, the word plague was supposedly coined by Galen. Um, And so Galen was actually a Greek. He was living in Rome uh, at the time, but he was a Greek and he was a fan of Hippocrates, which is, you know, really the the father, the godfather of medicine. medicine. Yeah, well, not really modern medicine, but medicine, you Mm. know. Um, Because he, what, Hippocrates, I think that was, what, like 2,500 years ago. He lived a long time ago. Um, 
And Hippocrates and Galen agreed uh, that the human body was governed by these four humors, um, which were blood, phlegm, so I guess like snot, uh, black bile, and yellow bile. So when I first read black bile and yellow bile, sounds kind of <laughs> like, sounds kind of accurate. <laughs> is that number two and number one, or what is it? Mm. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, so the, this, these four humors, this blood, phlegm, black bile, black bile, and yellow bile, were it is thought that they were probably adapted or converted from the four major elements, right? Uh, wind, water, fire, and earth. Uh, so you know, the wind, water, and fire, and earth that had been that was an idea that had been around for a while. And um, it's suspected that uh, doctors, physicians sort of adapted this four elements idea and converted it to the four humors of the human body. So blood um, was actually thought to be produced in the liver, which of course is not true. Uh, It's your bone marrow that creates your blood. Um, But they thought it was produced in the liver. And um, blood is linked to uh, temperament characteristics. So yeah, to be hot-blooded, cold-blooded. Right. If you're, if you're courageous, if you're hopeful, if you're playful, then your blood is uh, in good balance. Okay. You don't have any imbalance there. See red. Yeah. <laughs> um, for, more metaphors I can go <laughs> Or if you drank too much tequila, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Liquid courage. Um, an, Im- an imbalance of yellow bile uh, suggested uh, aggressiveness and anger. Okay, so maybe this is the tequila one. Um, <laughs> So yellow bile was associated with uh, the spleen, and it, like I said, it caused uh, if you if you were an aggressive person and uh, someone who gets you know a bit hot headed, uh, easily angry, then maybe you had an imbalance of yellow bile. Black bile was linked to the gallbladder, and an imbalance was thought to cause depression. Okay, yeah, yeah, so too, too much Guinness in the diet. Yeah, too much Guinness. <laughs> Don't drink too much Guinness. Uh, in fact, uh, the word melancholy is derived from the Greek word that means black bile. Okay. So I thought that was really interesting. And finally, um, so apathetic behaviors, if you just don't give a crap about anything, then you probably have an imbalance of phlegm. And uh, the, bla- the brain and the lungs were believed to be uh, the source of this humor. So this is uh, just to give you a backdrop of what uh, physicians sort of agreed on at the time, the same way physicians today agree on uh, certain yeah. basic things. And I think they had a, a rudimentary sense that you know, the air could be bad. They, they had no germ theory at the time, like you're suggesting, but I think they had the word miasma, you know, that, you know, there's, there was like poor or unhealthy kind of air. Right, um, right, and malaria, mal, area, yeah. bad air. Yeah. Very good, I like yeah. that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think hip, 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 how did you pronounce his name? Uh, Hippocrates. Hippocrates, yeah, okay. Just making sure that I was going to pronounce it correctly. Yeah. Uh, I think Hippocrates. Hippocrates. <laughs> <laughs> Hippocrates. Yeah. Um, Anyway, um, yeah, I think he was also one of the first to to advise kind of like a healthy lifestyle as well and diet. I think he stressed the importance of diet. Yeah, he was very stoic, very temperate, maybe. Yeah, oh, the Stoics. I love the Stoics. Might mention them in a moment when we when we discuss Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> um, well, this epidemic or pandemic, uh, the Antonine Plague uh, or the Plague of Galen, um, most likely emerged as Tim suggested in China. China. China, the China virus, except this time it's the China bacteria. Yeah, let's hear from former President China. Trump. I can't do it like him. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, let's hear, let's hear from Trump. Yeah, China. He does the best. I love hearing that. Okay, <laughs> um, so it emerged in China shortly after 166 um, CE, uh, spreading westward along the Silk Road and by trading ships headed for Rome. Um, sometime between late. 
165 to early 166, uh, the Roman military came into contact with the disease during the siege of Seleucia. I think that's how Seleucia. You yeah, well, this, that's the thing with the seas. Um, apparently, it just depends on the way you want to. Both are correct. Seleucia or Seleucia. Yeah. Uh, Dan Carlin explained it I one time. I think the C had a hard C or K sound. Right, yes. So Caesar would have been pronounced Kaiser. Kaiser, and, and Cicero would have been pronounced Kikero. Kikero. Which okay. is very strange. It's, yeah. Kikero does not sound Roman at all, but that's how they would have said yeah. it, supposedly. Okay. Um, well, Selu Sel Seleucia. Seleucia, yeah, let's yeah, go with okay, Seleucia. Seleucia. Seleucia yeah. was a major city on the Tigris um, or Tigris River um, at a point where the Tigris River and a canal to the Euphrates, Euphrates met. It was, it was close to Babylon or modern-day Baghdad. Right, Mesopotamia. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was besieged. In fact, it was, it was destroyed in, in the winter of 165 and 166 by the Roman soldiers. They destroyed this ancient city. It was actually founded centuries before by one of uh, Alexander's Diadochi, um, one of his followers. Um, and these troops who returned from the wars in the east spread the disease northward to Gaul, modern-day France, and among troops stationed along the Rhine River. And in fact, uh, we'll, we'll talk about how the military, the Roman military, was decimated uh, by this plague and how barbarian hordes I don't think that's pejorative at all. I think that sounds badass. <laughs> Barbarian hordes crossed the Rhine into into the Roman provinces uh, for the first time in 200 years oh, wow. due to the weakness that the, the plague created. And it won't be the last time. No. <laughs> um, at the time, they, they blamed Christians. Yeah, uh, why yeah. not? Yeah, they were the scapegoats at the time, which is interesting because during the plague of Athens, the Spartans were first... The scapegoats, it kind of makes sense. They thought they were poisoning their wells. Um, they weren't, um, at least I don't think so. And the Spartans very, very cautiously backed away. They didn't, um, it's not like they used the Athenian weakness um, as an opportunity to, to, to destroy them. They, they were very cautious and very smart and decided to let the plague do its work. And they retreated back and were, were largely unaffected. Right, which is perhaps more evidence that this was not the first plague of all time. Plagues were a known thing. Yeah, and I think even Thucydides, uh, when he writes about the plague of Athens in the history of the Peloponnesian War, um, I think he mentions how it had been, up until that point, a, a reasonably good year, meaning there was there was little disease, little out, few, fewer outbreaks of disease until this unprecedented, you know, force of nature occurred. Yeah. Um, there's also... A couple of really interesting legends that ascribe uh, the outbreak of the Antonine Plague um, to the Romans participating in a sacrilege, um, violating the sanctuary of a god and breaking breaking an oath. Um, so there are a couple of really cool kind of Tomb Raider um, causes, sort of like the, um, the 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 story of the um, the curse of uh, the, the the excavators of the crypt of Tutankhamun. Tutankhamun, yeah, yeah. yeah. Th this is uh, also really common. Plagues were often thought to come from tombs. Like, you, you shouldn't have opened that tomb. That's why you got that plague. You got that miasma. Yeah. You got that malaria, the bad air. Here's your dunce cap, yeah. Mm. Um, but I don't know if you read about this, but I think it's really fascinating too. There are contemporaneous accounts of the same plague afflicting the Han Chinese Empire. 
That's really crazy, yeah. To because think that the plague was in China and then yeah. a few years later was in Rome. In Not Ukraine. even at the same time. I mean, it, it emerged obviously in Eurasia. Um, they don't know where exactly. And uh, it, it, it traveled. With the Silk Road. These, the Silk Road yeah. and these trading networks. And Rome and China actually had, this is really cool, I'll, I'll talk about it in a moment, but Rome and China actually had uh, embassies that traveled to one another at this time uh, via maritime route. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I thought that was, even at that time, I mean, we were, we were quite well connected. The Roman Empire, at the time of the Roman Empire, Asia, Africa, Asia, North Africa, and, uh, and Europe were, were quite well connected. Yeah, it was really only the Americas and Sub-Saharan Africa that were cut off. Mm. Another Roman historian who documented um, this plague is uh, a guy called Cassius Dio. And he estimated there were about 2,000 deaths per day in Rome at the height of the outbreak. In the second outbreak, the estimate of the rate of death was much higher. About 5,000. Yeah, about 5,000 yeah, per day. Too. Um, and it's most probable that the extreme death toll was due to this disease exposure being new to people living around the Mediterranean. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yes, yeah, so the Antonine Plague was uh, probably smallpox then. The, the symptoms I found were that people had fever, diarrhea, vomiting, thirstiness, swollen throat and coughing um, and then also accompanied by uh, these papules these bursting papules on the skin yeah according to historian william h mcneil the antonine plague and the later plague of cyprian were outbreaks of two different diseases one of smallpox and one of measles um, which also comes from cattle originally rinderpest uh, is the disease in cattle which um, transformed to measles in, in humans but not necessarily in that order um, the severe devastation to the European population from the two plagues may indicate that people had no previous exposure like I said to either disease which brought a, immunity to survivors so they were, a, they were what's called a virgin um, population um, other historians believe that both outbreaks involved smallpox um, and the latter view is bolstered by molecular estimates that place the evolution of measles um, sometime after 1000 AD. So they say it can't be measles because that, that, that evolved later. Okay, interesting. I find that historians sometimes underestimate how old things are, though. Like some, like they keep pushing back the uh, the time when humans left Africa. They used to think it was 70,000 years ago. Then it was like, okay, maybe 120. Okay, maybe it was even longer ago. Yeah, and even, even radically, I think a, a year or two years ago, there was kind of breaking news that in modern-day Morocco, they found Homo sapien remains that exceeded previously thought um, date of the origin of Homo sapiens um, by 100,000 years. So yeah. before it was thought that you know Homo sapiens 200,000 years old. Now um, these ruins around a, a fireside indicate that it was a, at least 300,000 300, years. Yeah. yeah, and so maybe they're right on this measles one, but I always take that with a grain of salt when the, when yeah. historians say like, oh no, it's not that old. Well, a lot of the evidence is, is inconclusive. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, again, another common historical trope, well, the same one really that we mentioned earlier was that it was the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. Um, there's a lot of ongoing debate among scholars regarding the effects and consequences of the pandemic on the Roman Empire. Yeah, and it's just, it's almost silly to try to peg 
the fall of the Roman Empire in any one thing. I'm not, I'm not saying they're do, they're doing that, but um, when you say that, uh, or when people say like this contributed to the fall of the Roman Empire, I think people kind of naturally focus on that. When yeah. the reality is, you know, there were a lot of different factors. A lot of different factors. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's crazy to think that Marcus Aurelius um, died uh, died um, due to this um, pandemic uh, because. I don't know, perhaps Marcus Aurelius is quite well known to us, I suppose, well, due to a recent sort of depictions in, in kind of pop culture and that movie Gladiator. Yeah. Uh, where he's played by Richard Harris. Yeah, um, Richard Harris, yeah. And uh, and also because of the, the remaining popularity of Meditations, his, his book of Stoic aphorisms. Still popular. Yeah, I read that actually. I started reading that at the beginning of the pandemic last year of the lockdown, the first lockdown here in France. I'm very proud of two books that I managed to read in that time. One was Meditations by Marcus Aurelius and uh, the other one was War and Peace by Tolstoy. I finally finished that tome. Yeah, um, those are two must-reads, I think, for yeah. everyone at some point. And what's, what's, what's fascinating too, because these plagues can, they kind of, in, I mean, we had Trump who caught COVID-19, you had mm-hmm. Boris Johnson who caught COVID-19, Emmanuel Macron called COVID-19. I mean, none of them died of it, thankfully. Um, but at this time, yeah, Pericles died the leading states, statesman of Athens, and uh, every subsequent statesman was inferior. Um, Marcus Aurelius died again, ending this, ending this line of so-called five good emperors. Um, so just his absence uh, kind of destabilized things, and that was the period of the Pax Romana, uh, one of the unparalleled, uh, most peaceful moments in, in, in the history of civilization. Um, that wasn't really uh, replicated until the 20th century, post-World War II. So it's interesting. I mean, what kind of destabilizing effect may the COVID-19 pandemic have on the uh, political system today, coinciding with things like Brexit, the rise of populism, um, the you know growing distrust of institutions and, uh, you know, COVID-19 was the beginning of the end for the United States. (laughs) But the thing is, they say it was the beginning of the end for the Roman Empire, maybe. But the the Roman Empire lasted another 300, well, the Western Roman Empire lasted another 300 years after this plague. So it's it's a long ending. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's a gradual ending. They do talk about the, the, the beginning of the end of the liberal democratic you know, the, the reigning liberal democratic system. I mean, it wasn't very long ago that Francis Fukuyama said it was the end of history in the sense that fascism and communism both failed as, as leading um, ideologies and were left with liberal democracy as, as won the day. But it seems that's that assertion is on. Yeah, yeah. his article, he said, you know, our biggest fear will be uh, boredom now at this point. <laughs> I, I just finished binge watching this new Netflix series about the samurai um, the age of samurai I really recommend it Netflix aren't sponsoring us at all but it was so good again if they want to and I, I, I yeah please do <laughs> and I just thought of this because apparently after the from the 16th century or the end of the 16th century beginning of the 17th century right up to the 19th century there were about 250 years of unparalleled peace um, in, in Japanese history. So I suppose the Pax Romana, this period of Japanese history and, and the modern second half of the, the 20th century, um, you know, have been these, uh, you know, unprecedented moments of sort of peace and stability, uh, relatively speaking. And um, it was it was a, uh, a pandemic that sort of arguably told a death knell for some of those. Right. But I guess the, the key difference is that 
COVID-19 as bad as, it, as bad as it is, is um, pretty, pretty small, small potatoes in yeah. comparison to these plagues we're talking about. Yeah, they're not, they're not comparable. Um, Marcus Aurelius in the Roman Empire was engaged in the Marcomannic uh, Wars at the time, uh, fighting along the Danube against, the, against those tribes. And um, they, they really struggled. Um, they really struggled defending their, their eastern provinces. And like I said, in the west, uh, barbarian hordes crossed the Rhine. Um, so it was a pretty bad time, militarily speaking, also for, for the Roman Empire. So, Anthony, have you ever had malaria? Uh, no, no, thankfully. No, no, no I, don't I took think. some pills for it, you know, just in case. But oh, the malarone there, the yeah, uh, the yeah. one you have to take every day. Was yeah. it the daily I, one? I, I forget. Yeah, I forget where I was when I took it. I think Southeast Asia. I've taken it before too, but then um, I stopped taking it because it's kind of it's a little bit expensive, and it's also the side effects are not uh, that great, and it doesn't actually prevent you from getting the disease. It does apparently prevent you with high likelihood of dying when you get the disease but the best defense against malaria is actually just like a good old-fashioned precaution bug spray <laughs> bug spray and avoiding areas where uh their mosquitoes would hang out and malaria is present anyway so malaria is not strictly a plague because plagues are uh, bacterial they're only bacterial in nature but malaria is um <clears throat> there can be pandemics malarial pandemics and malaria has been so influential on history, speci specifically uh, the antiquity period, that I really wanted to talk about it. Um, so how does malaria work? Malaria is um, a sort of uh, disease that is carried by a parasite uh, in mosquitoes, specifically female mosquitoes, because it's the, the females that bite humans. Uh, the male mosquitoes don't. They actually don't bite humans. Mm. Did you know that? Yeah, it's the... I, I, I think... It you don't actually, not all mosquitoes make that sound. That's only the female mosquitoes, isn't it? Oh, yeah. The, I think the, the, the ones that don't make the zzz yeah. are harmless. Oh, okay. okay. So I feel, I feel bad for killing them. They must be the guys, <laughs> the males. But the I, I think, I feel like there's several different types of mosquitoes and some of them have that sound. Like, and also some, some, some of them are daytime mosquitoes, nighttime mosquitoes. Anyway, I think we, we can all agree that mosquitoes are really annoying. They really suck. Um, so what happens with malaria is a mosquito carrying the malaria bites you and about two weeks later you start to feel a little bit tired uh you get a fever you usually vomit and you have a bad headache now if you have a really bad case uh your skin will start to start to turn yellow um you'll have a seizure maybe coma and unfortunately you might even die so that's uh in severe cases um but usually if you're a, a healthy adult and you get treatment at a hospital, your chances of surviving are pretty good. As long as they realize it's malaria, you know, if they don't know they're dealing with malaria, they might mistreat it, whatever, that these things can happen. Um, Elon Musk got malaria, did you know that? No. Yeah, he actually almost died of malaria. Um, That's good news for the space program that he didn't. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I think he was a young man, he was in his 20s. Um, anyway, so malaria has been around for hundreds of thousands of years, but it really took off in the last 10,000, coinciding as you said before with agriculture um, and the advent of agriculture and its spread around Eurasia um, so anywhere near marshes or stagnant water is really good for the mosquitoes to hang out because uh, mosquitoes only live for about a week I believe or even a few days um, so they really have to contract the malaria from another animal and immediately or, or another human and immediately pass it on to you um, before they die themselves um, so malaria is believed to be the most influential disease 
in human history. And here's why. Um, it actually contributed to the rise of Rome, um, as we said before, and also the downfall of Rome. But focusing on the rise of Rome, how could malaria possibly have contributed to the rise of Rome? Well, around Rome in the Lazio region, the Latium region, uh, they have a lot of marshes. Uh, what was it? You said it before, the Ponine marshes, the Pine, P Pontine marshes, something like that. Anyway, they have a lot of marshland, um, and it's since been drained, but historically they've had a lot of marshland in that area. And this marshland is just ripe for uh, for mosquito population explosions and and, uh, and therefore malaria. And I think it was Mussolini, in fact, who drained a lot of these marshes. I remember. It was. I remember learning that in history in high school. It was. Yes. Yeah. He he drained them uh, just to uh, probably. I'm, I'm assuming to make it easier for uh, the Italian soldiers to move about um, Italy without contracting malaria. Um, so. The whenever Rome in its early stages, the Roman Republic, um, whenever it was being invaded by anyone, really, be it the Etruscans or uh, maybe the Carthaginians, these marshes, uh, these these malaria filled marshes were like this just extremely effective shield for the Roman people. They could kind of retreat. They could retreat the same way that the Athenians did, as you mentioned before, and uh, it would just work much better because these people uh, arriving, these invaders had no immunity, no mm. resistance to the malaria, and it would promptly decimate their armies. Um, it wouldn't be the only factor in, in Rome uh, winning many defensive wars, but it would be a big one. Um, for example, Hannibal Barca, uh, everyone probably knows Hannibal Barca, invaded uh, the surprise invasion of the Italian pe peninsula by Hannibal Barca. He, he went over the, the Alps, which was really unexpected, and it was a, it was a great move. He probably would have won the war uh, if it wasn't for malaria. He ended up losing his eye uh, to, I'm assuming, to like bad fever or something like that. He lost one of his eyes, uh, his wife, a son, and, um, you know, it just decimated his army. I think he lost a brother in a battle in northern Italy as well. Oh, did he? Okay. He came as reinforcements for, for Hannibal. Yeah. Yeah, he, he could have won. I mean, this is, we don't have time to get into this, but Hannibal was one of the uh, most successful sort of infiltration attempts on, yeah. on the Italian peninsula, right? Yeah. What's that expression? I love Carthago delenda es Carthage must be destroyed. <laughs> yeah. I forget who said that. I think it was Cato or something. And they what? They what was what? What was it you said? The Carthaginian peace. The uh, the Carthaginian solution. The solution was basically to just destroy, wipe them out, destroy the civilization. Right. Yeah. yeah I've heard that even American generals use this term yeah. to this day. You know, do we need to implore the? Do we need to employ the Carthaginian yeah. solution? And they, and they also, um, there's still another saying from that time as well, uh, Hannibal at the gates. I mean, when when the enemy is, is right up close, I mean, people, it's said, still still say this Hannibal is at the gates. Hannibal at the gates, yeah. So, yeah, as you can imagine, Rome didn't take too kindly to uh, mm. Hannibal's invasion. Um, so anyway, not only did malaria contribute to the spread of Roman culture and language, because, of course, Thanks to uh, the malaria-infested marshes around Rome, Rome was able to sort of stabilize and conquer and grow, and thus spreading their culture and language. Uh, but it also enabled the Atlantic slave trade. So the way this works is um, malaria, which is thought to come from Africa, um, was you know around. These African farmers were contracting malaria for millennia um, before uh, you know this is leading up to modern civilization. Um, in prehistoric Africa. And these African farmers actually developed a sort of genetic semi-immunity to malaria. Um, and unfortunately for them, this meant that their descendants 
uh, were much better suited for slave labor in the tropics. Um, and now we're talking, this is uh, just 500 years ago during the Columbian Exchange, the Spanish and Portuguese and... and the Atlantean slave trade. Exactly, yeah. The colonization of the Caribbean and South America, where you could grow sugar and all these other really profitable products. Um, well, it turns out these Europeans and even the Native Americans weren't well suited to um, work these, you know, 16, 18 hour days in the fields, uh, especially with mosquitoes around. Um, you think it's hard to work a 16 hour day in good condition. I imagine trying to do it with malaria. It doesn't sound very fun. Um, but these African farmers with this genetic disposition uh, to a little bit of an, an immunity against malaria were perfect candidates to work in these, in these fields, in these conditions. So it, it really, when you look at the Atlantic slave trade, it looks like it was really just a perfect storm for the Africans, unfortunately. It's, it's a terrible thing. They say malaria is responsible also for uh, the fact that it took the Europeans and the, colon, you know, the colonizers an additional 400 years to, to colonize and to partition places like Papua New Guinea and, and, and Africa um, compared to the length of time it took them to, to do so in a new world. Um, in, in areas where there was less less malarial and tropical diseases. Oh, okay. It was kind of a, a catalyst, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Um, what you mentioned about Rome reminds me, too, of something I read, incidentally, in, in, in Irish history in the, in the early 16th, um, sorry, in the early 17th century, when you had the flight of the earls, all those Gaelic chieftains who left Ireland and then went to Spain and, and Italy, etc. Many of them went to Rome um, because they were good Catholics, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Hugh O'Neill was, was, was the most famous of them and a lot of their family members, their kin. And uh, many of them, incidentally, died from malaria in Rome or around the port of Ostia. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's, it's unfortunately a common fate for people visiting Rome. Yeah. <laughs> when in Rome, do what the Romans do. Die of malaria. <laughs> Die of malaria. <laughs> so the Antonine Plague, it had its twin in the Cyprian Plague, um, about 100 years later, it was between the years 249 and 62, um, common era, of course. It was named, like the Plague of Galen, after St. Cyprian, the Christian Bishop of Carthage. Uh, city dwellers fled to the country to escape infection, but instead spread the disease further. It possibly started in Ethiopia, like um, the Plague of Athens, in fact. Um, that was a plague hotbed just south of Ethiopia, around Congo, Zaire, um, in the heart of Africa, it passed through northern Africa into Rome, then onto Egypt and northward. There were recurring outbreaks over the next three centuries. Um, there was a later incident in 270 that involved the death of Claudius II, emperor at the time. Um, it's unknown if this was the same plague or a different outbreak. Uh, it affected also the Goths and the Scythians too. It's important to remember that not only the Romans were affected by, or the Greeks were affected by these by these pandemics. Um, they, they also affected other populations as well. In 444 CE, it hit Britain and obstructed defense efforts against the Picts and the Scots, causing the British to seek help from the Saxons, who would soon control the, control the island. Um, again, they say that this plague nearly saw the end of the Roman Empire. Um, it caused widespread manpower shortages for food production and the Roman army, weakening the empire during the crisis of the third century, a period in which the Roman Empire nearly collapsed under combined pressions pressures, sorry, of barbarian invasions and migrations into Roman territory that, that I mentioned earlier, civil wars. This is the period um, defined by the so-called barracks emperors who were like th 
20 different emperors at this time. Um, yeah, just assassinating each other right and left. Exactly. Uh, really, really crazy period. I think there were like, yeah, like I said, 20 of them. It's, it's amazing. All generals kind of propped up and then taken down. Yeah, it's such a, a stark uh, transition from the Octavian period. Yeah, yeah. This, this is the aftermath of the, the Pax Romana and after the, you know, the impact of the, the Antonine Plague, etc. Um, there were peasant rebellions, political instability, um, the debasement of currency, economic depression, things that we're seeing today as well. According to the historian Kyle Harper, at this time, the history of Rome is a confusing tangle of violent failures. Quote, the structural integrity of the imperial machine burst apart. The frontier system crumbled. The collapse of legitimacy invited one usurper after another to try for the throne. The empire fragmented, and only the dramatic success of later emperors in putting the pieces back together prevented this moment from being the final act of Roman imperial history, end quote. Um, at the time, the Roman Empire was largely pagan and polytheistic. There were fewer than 1% um, of the emperor's population that were Christian, who were also the scapegoats in this, in this instance too. Um, and this is credited, this period is credited of making Christianity a much more attractive belief system to the majority of people. They were motivated by Christian charity, their ethic of care for the sick, um, and uh, the fact that the empire's Christian communities were willing and able to provide palliative care, unlike the Roman pagans, um, who had a sort of a quid pro quo relationship with their gods. You know, I'll worship you if you look out for me. And they saw that their gods had failed them. Rodney Stark, an American sociologist of religion, says this had two effects. In fact, first, Christians survived the ravages of these plagues at higher rates than the pagans. Uh, they developed higher levels of immunity more quickly. Um, seeing that more of the Christian compatriots were surviving the plague, um, a lot of the pagans um, decided that, in fact, their god you know, must be, um, I suppose, more powerful than their pagan gods. They were drawn to, to the Christian community and their belief system. Um, and secondly, because these two plagues disproportionately affected young and pregnant women, the lower mortality rate among Christians translated into a higher birth rate. The net effect of all this was that in roughly the span of a century, an essentially pagan empire found itself on its way to becoming a majority Christian one. And within a generation of the Cyprian plague, Christianity had become the dominant religion in the empire. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so I suppose... To make some closing remarks in today's episode, uh, perhaps we can talk about some of the consolations or lessons from this ancient history of pandemics. What do you think we can take from this um, today, Tim? I don't know, because in order to halt a plague or halt a pandemic in its tracks, it requires very early, immediate, and uniform change in people's behavior. Um, which is very difficult for people to do unless they see the threat, you know, in front of their face. So, I don't know, in terms of lessons, I guess we can always try to look at history. You know, I have uh, students who ask me, why do we study history? What's the point of studying history? Um, I'm not a history teacher, but they've, they've asked me this anyway. Um, and I tell them that we, we study history so we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, which I think is a common response maybe that teachers give. Um, well, you know, people don't change. Uh, circumstances change, times change, events change, tech, technology changes. Um, but there are lessons, I think, that can be pragmatic lessons that can be learned, but also just kind of things. Uh, it really makes me feel very grateful 
learning a lot of this history or knowing a lot about this history, I, I, I take a lesson in humility from it. Also, um, Homo sapiens' place in the world, like we said, we're not the, um, we're not, out, we don't exist outside of nature. We're part of like an earth system, um, and we are, you know, we are, we are, we are, we are part of the the world we we belong to. We're part of the ecosystem, and we're at the, we're at, you know, we're at the. How do you say? The inflection point. Or? I know we're we're vulnerable to, to to microbes, and I think I think we're very hubristic sometimes, very proud, and I think there's a lesson in humility. Um, I think there's some lessons here, especially looking at um, the plague of Athens. Uh, you know, perhaps how to maintain popular trust without succumbing to populism, um, which was what happened to the Athenians in the aftermath. Pericles himself became a scapegoat, um, and this was one of Thucydides pitfalls of democracy, um, the fact that democracy so often um, is vulnerable to populism and you actually need, for, for strong democracy, you need outstanding leaders. And there's something very similar, but I, I think there's something similar between Pericles and, and, and John F. Kennedy in the, in the 20th century, that, that famous quotation, um, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, echoes um, Pericles' uh, message to the Athenians when he saw um, how society was was crumbling around around them while they were being afflicted. I think an interesting analogy we can maybe draw is look at the way some of these countries like Vietnam, South Korea, Japan, how how much better did they do with COVID nineteen versus some of these Western countries, especially the United States, which got just rocked by the virus, and our only hope of getting out of this is the vaccine. Definitely. So this kind of Western centric um, idea that we know best. Um, is is sort of uh, a fiction. Yeah, and maybe we see Japan or or, or ja the Japanese and the Koreans as being maybe uh, less less confident, uh, less individualistic, and and thus somehow inferior because they just think, oh, they don't see themselves as uh, uh, important individually. They're just sort of a cog in the machine. Yeah. But when a virus hits, like it's really important for everyone to be a cog in the machine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe we're a little too individualistic. And these societies as well, Korea, I suppose New Zealand is noteworthy among the Western um, nations. But, I mean, they, they had high degrees of, of trust, um, of popular trust and public trust, which um, stood to them. I think these pandemics reveal the fault lines in societies. I mean, they, they reveal, of societies and of individuals, they reveal our character, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, and just if I may, one quick tangent. Um, one of the effects on some of these plagues was that society would halt, and in fact, like famine and the 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 other effects of a lack of economic activity ended up being just as bad as the plague itself. Like mm -hmm. a lot of people having to flee, uh, nothing to eat, um, trying to find a new life elsewhere, like turning a whole city into a bunch of refugees, pretty much. So it's kind of it's difficult to to see what the best course of action would have been because if they had somehow done a, a sort of antiquity version of lockdown mm. to prevent the virus, maybe that would have been, um, the effects of that would have been just as bad as just the plague itself. Yeah, mm. sort of uh, what happened to the Athenians. They were locked in their little city-state, but uh, it, in, in that case, it was a, it was a, it was a poor measure against the, against that pandemic, and, and also they're living in very unsanitary conditions, etc. Yeah, but um, but I mean, could they even afford? Like in in some countries, they can't afford to even lock down. Though we've been afforded to because it's such a poor welfare state, you need to get out and work to put food on the table, and there's no uh, 
chômage, there's no um, right. welfare. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I think even uh, in the best of economic times, not everyone had enough to yeah, eat yeah, in those yeah. times. Um, and I think also on a, on a final note, there was a classical kind of ethos um, among the Greeks, among the Romans, that, I mean, to quote uh, Russell Crowe in Gladiator, what we do in life echoes in eternity, and that history is watching you, and that disease and war pass, but your, repu your reputation endures. And even Thucydides was aware of that, and he was writing for the benefit of, of future peoples. Um, and I think he would sort of suggest that, I mean, behave honorably, have trust in the social contract, um, guard your honor, and uh, and for Saint Cyprian, uh, you know he he his lesson from the Cyprian, so-called Cyprian plague was uh, yeah to live one's fate fully because I mean we never know what's going to happen. Live your faith fully, live honorably. Uh, your actions will be remembered long after you're gone. They didn't really believe in an afterlife so much in in, in the classical sense. Um, I mean, there was mention of Hades and places like that, but they didn't believe that soul lived on and you were rewarded. I mean, you, your, your reputation lived on. You, you, you survived in your reputation. Right. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're basically saying Thucydides said, don't hoard toilet paper. Don't hoard toilet paper. What we do in life echoes in eternity. <laughs> yes, thanks, Russell Crowe. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, this was our first episode on plagues. There will surely be um, an episode in the future on, on the bubonic plague. Yeah, I think in our next episode we'll focus on um, bubonic plague, starting with the Justinian plague, our last of our ancient plagues, right up through the Black Death, the third uh, plague pandemic of the 19th century, um, the plague outbreak in London in, in the 1600s. Um, 1720 Marseille. 1720 Marseille. I want to talk a little bit about the Black Death, the experience of the Black Death in Ireland. Um, props to, to the Irish listeners there. Um, so, good things ahead. Well, Sounds like fun. <laughs> sounds like yeah, a lot of death ahead. But we'll try to learn some lessons from it. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, thanks for listening again. And uh, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, our Instagram and Twitter handle is at PolemicalCast. Polemical is P-O-L-E-M-I-C-A-L. -E and uh, see you next time. Bye. Three weeks from now, I will be harvesting my crops. Imagine where you will be. And it will be so. Hold the line. Stay with me. If you find yourself alone, riding in green fields with the sun on your face, do not be troubled. For you are in Elysium, and you're already dead! <laughs> Brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity.